Shortcast Club. Hi, I'm Avi, founder of Shortcast Club. Each week, we highlight some of our favorite shortcasts. If you like variety, this is the podcast for you. First up today, one of my favorite inspirational creators, Samantha Chung, in her shortcast, Simplifying Sam, the Shortcast. In this episode, she talks about falling in love with the creative process, separate from the results of that process. If I could give the entire world just one tip that would change their entire life, it would be to fall in love with the creative process. Whatever it is you're doing, you're writing a book, you're creating a website, you're creating a program, whatever it is you're doing, fall in love with that process. Do not become obsessed and find yourself in the results. Fall in love with the process itself. Being in love with the process is what is going to allow you to continue creating when the results of your creation don't really go anywhere. And you're going to need to become comfortable with that because as a creative, not everything you create is going to be amazing. In fact, I would say 80% of it's going to suck, subjectively speaking. Objectively speaking, every creation is good because it didn't exist before you created it. And that is what I want you to fall in love with. The fact that as a creator, a human being, you can make things that you see in your mind that were never here before. Fall in love with that. Stop obsessing over whether the creation is good or whether you look good in it or what people are going to be impacted by it. Like we don't actually know what those results are going to be. Only time will tell. Only the algorithm will tell. Nobody effing knows. But if you can fall in love with the creative process, getting the idea, bringing it to life, infusing yourself with it, you'll never stop that. And if you never stop that, then eventually something you create is going to blow up. It's just math. The people who don't stop and keep going eventually see some form of success, some form of recognition for their long-standing efforts. And those long-standing efforts are a result of falling in love with the creative process, just getting jazzed about getting to create something in the first place. The failure of most people is that they create like two things and like wait in the comments and the like section to see like if everyone liked it. Like... That is not the point of creation. The point of creation is to fall in love with that process so that no matter what the results of that creation were, you want to go back to the drawing board. You want to go again, right? And so when I think about my videos, I don't really care how well they do. I just like to talk about these things. It literally jazzes me up to come here with an idea, express myself, and know that some person, maybe it's just one person, is going to maybe receive that. That is what brings me back to the drawing board time and time again, viral video or not. So if you did anything with the remainder of 2023, I hope it would be to fall in love with creation itself. I especially love this advice as we continue to build this podcast and our shortcast platform. Of course, the external validation of your subscribing and reviewing is also welcome. Next, Dr. Ben Crosby in this episode from Trivium U, Timeless Training for Professional Communicators. What do you do when you walk into a room at a networking event to make an impression and take the nerves out of it? to command respect when you walk into the room. Maybe you're interviewing for a new job. Maybe it's your first week at a new company. Maybe you are a young exec and you want to make a good impression, or maybe you're just at a networking event and you want to network. You walk into the room a few minutes early. What's your next move? Remember, you want to command respect, not be a wallflower. At the same time, you don't want to appear to be a grandstander like the world revolves around you. So what do you do? Do you pull out your phone and start scrolling through it trying to look busy? Do you scan the room for a friendly face? Or perhaps someone in authority like the VP of sales, you know, the important people? 
Instead, do the opposite. Find the receptionist. Talk to them. Talk to the shy AP girl. Find the person prepping the finger foods and make conversation with them. Find the newly appointed manager over customer service, the rank and file. Meet them. Talk with them. Not only are they going to appreciate that interaction, but you're going to feel more at ease and you might make some allies in the process. You'll find the other people in the room eventually. You'll talk to them, but in the meantime, guess what? The important people, they're going to take note of you. Not only will this approach bolster your own self-confidence, but it's going to bolster their perception of your self-confidence. I'm Ben Crosby, a professor of rhetoric and a communication skills consultant. I help people be more persuasive. Check the link in my bio for more info. Now let's hear from Joshua Terhune, a child therapist. In this episode from his shortcast, he shows and then analyzes a failure at gentle parenting. Then he demonstrates the right way to do it, how to be firm and gentle at the same time. Do you want to see a gentle parenting fail in real time? I'm a child therapist and someone tagged me in a video and this seemed like a really good teachable moment. So I'll play the short video, I'll discuss what happened, why it happened, and what they can do differently. Let's roll the clip. Trying gentle parenting. Bubby, please stop doing that. Okay. Quit! Get away from it now! Thank you. <laughs> this is a common scenario that I see with parents is that they try it once, doesn't get the desired effects they want, so they go back to their previous way of parenting, and that gets the effect, so it's like, well, Gentle parenting doesn't work, but the parents who are successfully able to implement gentle parenting, they're patient with themselves and their kids. They understand that it's just not going to magically change overnight. And for the parents who are yellers and screamers, most likely your children have associated your yelling with you being serious, and that's when they listen. And so it's going to take consistent, patient effort to show that even though you're kind, that you can still set boundaries and limits and that some unwanted consequence can happen even if you are speaking to them kindly. So the acronym I tell the parents that I work with is ACT, A-C-T. Acknowledge the feeling or wish, communicate the rule, and then target an acceptable alternative. So here's an example. Hey buddy, you really want to jump on the couch, but the couch isn't for jumping on. What do you say, I give you a horsey ride, or we play keepy-uppy, or you do kangaroo jumps around the room? Most of the time, fighting an alternative works, but if none of that works, then stating a final consequence, such as not being allowed in the room, or loss of a privilege, or time in. While I commend this parent for trying gentle parenting, only doing it once and not getting the results that you expected isn't really giving it a fair chance. Again, it takes patience and consistency. And the more you do this, the more your children will understand that you can be firm and gentle at the same time. I think one reason the firm but gentle communication is so important is that it's a lesson for life generally, not just for kids. And this models for our kids how to successfully navigate confrontation for their whole life. 
This next one is really fun. Let's hear from Zora Starr, an upcoming speculative fiction writer with a special love for dark fantasy. In her shortcast, she offers unique perspectives on movies and books. In this episode, she explains how the movie The Breakfast Club, the classic 1980s teen movie, is not just a movie, but a genre in itself. So I finally discovered what my favorite genre of movie is. It's The Breakfast Club. Now I know what you're thinking. Zora, The Breakfast Club is a movie. It isn't a genre. Isn't it? Isn't it though? I don't know y'all, five misfits who are strangers to each other ending up in some kind of disciplinary location, starting off as strangers to each other, and eventually becoming a found family. It sounds very familiar, does it not? Let's not forget that usually each is based off of some stereotype to play a specific role in the group. Two of the people usually end up in a relationship together, and you're gonna have that one campfire-esque scene where they all break down their feelings and get to know each other. A lot of movies use it, specifically action and superhero-esque films. Power Rangers 2017, Guardians of the Galaxy, both Suicide Squad films. One of the greatest Disney Channel original movies of all time follows that blueprint. And you know what? It eats every time. I'll fold a little and say it's a subgenre rather than a genre. Breakfast Club, I'd argue, is the oldest, most iconic film with this blueprint, so it gets the honor of titling the subgenre. Speaking of the 80s, let's talk about the root of our bad habits. Tammy Amet, a psychotherapist, in her shortcast, Therapy Beyond the Couch, says that we give ourselves different symptoms and bad habits, maybe things like anxiety, addiction, procrastination, etc., as a way to protect ourselves from something. And she suggests a way to interrogate those symptoms. Talk to your symptoms. Every symptom that you have is trying to protect you. The question is, what is it that it's protecting you from? And can you create some flexibility in the way that it serves you? Hey, I'm a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, and EMDR practitioner, and I want to propose a new way for you to interact with your symptoms. You know, your addictions, your habits, your obsessive thinking, the anxiety, the depression, all of that. All of that has one purpose, and that is to protect you. To find out what that purpose is, talk to it, ask it questions. Begin by imagining that this habit, this addiction, this thing that you want to get rid of is standing in front of you. What might it look like? And now ask it. What is it that you do for me? How is it that you protect me? What are you protecting me from? And finally, how old was I when you were first created? Next up, Dr. Wes Ely, a professor at Vanderbilt, an ICU physician, researcher, and founder and co-director of the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center. In his shortcast, Dr. Wes Ely's Medical Updates, he shares with us some new research about one aspect about the physiology of long COVID, actual changes in blood. Hey friends, Dr. Wes Ely here, and I want to tell you a fascinating story that was just told to me by a great scientist about the disease of long COVID as it relates to these microclots, this clotting problem that COVID patients have. And uh, you know, in acute COVID, we had a lot of patients die from clotting issues and long-term, the cognitive impairment and other problems that, that long COVID patients experience may very well have to do with an abnormal clotting cascade. Too much blood thick, 
thickening and not enough breakdown of clots. Well, I was on the phone on a Zoom call today with Risha Pretorius, and she's a great scientist from South Africa. I got permission from her to tell you this story. And as a scientist in long COVID, she was looking at blood tubes from people who had had their blood drawn who had long COVID. And after exposing them to a chemical uh, that should have broken down the blood clots, they, she noticed a thin silver line in the tube after centrifugation, after spinning the tube, that she said, well, that should not be there. This, this blood should have been thinned out by the chemical procedure we just did, which has worked for 20 years in other diseases. And they had to expose long COVID patients' blood to a second round of this blood thinning uh, method. And only after doing the second exposure, that's how hard these blood clots were to break down, did they find that there were encapsulated uh, proteins, uh, antibodies, C-reactive protein, von Willebrand factor. And they published these data in, in an excellent publication, which I can put the link to in this, uh, in this video, which really just boils down to the fact that this is a, an unseen disease that real scientists all over the world are finding and having to develop new methods uh, related to analyzing the blood clotting that is going on inside of long COVID patients. Uh, what does this mean for you and me? Uh, it means that we need real clinical trials, great science to try and understand how to treat this problem in patients who are suffering from ongoing cognitive impairment, uh, cardiovascular problems like POTS disease, and we need to make absolutely certain that these patients are heard, that they feel listened to, that they are not gaslit um, and disregarded as if they have some sort of psychological problem. The anxiety they experience and the thinking problems are certainly part of the pathophysiology of their disease. It's not a mere psychological or psychosomatic problem. This is part of their underlying disease process. So let's make sure that we listen to them uh, endorse and validate their issues, uh, their, their, their complaints, because they are the experts of their own illness. And let's listen to great scientists like Risha Pretorius, who are calling for the right sort of clinical trials to analyze what is the right treatment to help people with long COVID find their way back to normal and pick up the pieces of their life. I hope this was of help to you today. Thank you. That's scary stuff. Well, now let's hear from Thomas Metzinger. He just did a 14-part series on his Suggestible Mind shortcast of habits that make you better. This was the final piece of the series with one last good habit. Hey man, here's your therapy for today. Here's the last one, habit number 14, that I'd like for you to engage in. Uh, this can promote, you know, your own well-being and the likelihood that you'll grow in a positive direction. And number 14 is committing to self-care. And that means doing things for yourself. You know, it's not selfish you taking time or carving time out for you to engage in some hobbies or some relaxation activities or some pampering, uh, you know, and the likes. You taking time for self-care is really important. You have to balance out the amount of energy that you're putting out there to the world and giving to others with uh, putting that focus and energy on yourself. So this is habit number 14. And if you want to be a better version of yourself, commit to your own self-care, whatever that looks like for you. I hope you enjoyed. 
doing these 14 habits uh, are not necessarily the answer to you being the best version, but they're going to push you in that direction. So, And there are other ones too. So I hope you've enjoyed this series. And if you have any comments uh, or like me to do anything else in line with this, or you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. Also, if you haven't uh, heard or checked it out uh, recently, uh, I have a new podcast with a colleague and a good friend and a mentor, Brett. It's called Therapy Unzipped, and it's a freaking wild ride, man. So check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll see you soon. For our final segment this week, Nathan Nobus, a philosophy professor at Morehouse College, in his shortcast, makes a point that that's just semantics is not a valid counterargument. Suppose you say, I need to go to a bank. And I say, oh, I live right by a bank. And, we, and you say, okay, let's go to your house. And we go to my house, and then I say, look, the bank. And it turns out to be a river bank. Suppose you say, that's not the kind of bank I wanted. I wanted a bank where I could get some money out. Suppose I then say, oh, that's just semantics. That's just semantics about the word bank. I fairly frequently hear people say, like, that's just semantics. And um, I honestly don't know what they mean, because honestly... The meanings of words or semantics is very, very important. You know, if somebody uses a word and that word has multiple meanings, well, which meaning they mean is very, very important. So um, the lesson here is when all, I, I can't think of an example where somebody says that's just semantics and that makes sense because the meanings of words are really, really important. What are some examples? Do you have any examples in mind? Don't Considering that he's a professional philosopher, it must really rankle him when someone says that in a debate. I hope you enjoyed this taste of some of my favorite shortcasts from the week. If you did, please subscribe and consider writing a review on your podcast app. It helps surface our show to other potential listeners. We really appreciate your support as we grow our show. There are links for each of the creators you heard today in the show notes. We encourage you to find and follow them on Shortcast Club. They are all very binge-worthy. Check out more great shows available on Shortcast Club. Download the app from the iOS or Android app store. Search for Shortcast Club. Thanks and happy listening.